You are now listening to Liberation. I am your host, LaCroix Hatcher. Liberation presents Jerry Barber. Jerry presently serves as the evangelist for the Pacific Church of Christ in Pacific, Missouri. This episode, Jerry will walk us through his 50 plus years as a preacher and why he currently only serves as an interim preacher. We will also talk about problems he has faced within the church, elders, and how they can be more effective. And we will also talk about why he runs marathons barefooted. Please enjoy the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of uh, Liberation. Uh, this evening, I have a gentleman that takes his role serving the Lord very seriously. Uh, he's been uh, in the ministry of the Lord's kingdom since 1967 and still seems to be going strong. Uh, he's been a full-time uh, minister to five congregations and been an interim uh, minister to numerous, numerous other congregations. Uh, he also conducts a workshop to strengthen and support new elders, which we'll get into uh, later on in the uh, interview. Um, this man uh, needs no introduction. He's well known through the uh, brotherhood, from what I understand. Uh, I have Jerry Barber on the line with me. Uh, Brother Barber, how are you doing this evening? I am doing great. <laughs> Me and Brother Barbara have been suffering some technical difficulties, and I will take the blame for it. Uh, but finally got things worked out and glad to have him on this evening. So, uh, Brother Barbara, um, I usually try to start this with everyone. Uh, tell us about your introduction to Christ and his church. Well, I grew up in a home where uh, for the first five years of my life, my mother was a primitive Baptist. Uh, my father was a member of the church, and so once a month we'd go to Goshen Primitive Baptist Church, and the rest of the time we went to Ships Bend Church of Christ. Uh, when I was five, mother was converted, and uh, so we were the family that had the preacher in our home probably three out of four Sundays for meals, and they stayed with us during gospel meetings, and I was uh, just grew up hearing about Jesus and going to Bible school and vacation Bible school and obeyed the gospel just a couple of three weeks before I was 12 years old. Preached my first sermon at 16. <laughs> wow, 16. <laughs> now, is that something you wanted to do or your father pushed you into it? No, no. Daddy had a third grade education, okay. uh, but he... He he studied the Bible and and uh, talked and he and mother were good in personal evangelism. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just no they they never told me to do it. What really I guess was a major influence. We had a our local preacher moved in next door to us. Daddy went with me hunting one time and fishing one time, and I think he'd rather been at work both those days. Uh, but this preacher hunted and fished, and in the winter of uh, 1961, he said, I go to National Guard camp, and we shouldn't have to pay anybody to come in and preach when I'm gone. You'd preach one Sunday night, wouldn't you? Well, everybody's taking you fishing and hunting every Sunday or Saturday. 
pretty well got to cooperate. And so about March, he said, hey, you coming on your sermon? I said, well, I've been thinking about it. And he said, well, come over to the house and I'll help you. And he helped me get up the sermon and his wife typed out, typed out the outline. And I hadn't missed many Sundays since then. Wow. Wow. So um, where were the other men in the congregation that didn't want to jump to that assignment? Well, they did. He, he got... He got several of us lined up. He was gone okay. for two weeks to National Guard camp, and so he just picked me out for one Sunday night, uh, June 18, 1961. Wow, wow. So from the time you preached your first uh, sermon, uh, was this something that you had already set in your mind, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? No, no. Uh, in fact, the first year of Freed Hardeman, I majored in elementary education. I didn't know if I could make it as a preacher or not. So my plan at that time was to uh, preach on Sundays, be a elementary school teacher, and maybe work up to be a principal. My dad was a carpenter, so I thought maybe I could learn to do that and build a house every summer to support my other two habits. Uh, but after my first year, Brother Claude Gardner said, you need to, you need to major in Bible. I was preaching every Sunday by that time. Uh, a month after I preached my first sermon, I went down to Lower Sulphur Church of Christ where Daddy grew up and preached and they said, would you come back next month? I said, yeah. And then another congregation said, would you come and next start coming? And so I was preaching three, three, uh, churches, same sermon, one sermon a month, and I go around the circuit, and so that's what I did during high school. Wow, wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. So, so you were preaching basically two or three times a month before you graduated from high school. Yeah, yeah, junior and senior <laughs> year. Wow. So. I guess the uh, reading and arithmetic wasn't enough on your plate. You had to go preaching, too. Well, <laughs> I just had that opportunity, and I enjoyed it. scared me to death. Daddy had a 1950 Chevrolet pickup, and uh, I'd drop him and, and mother off at Chips Bend, and I'd go down to Wolf Creek and Lower Sulphur and Upper Sulphur. Those were the three I started with. Mm. And I'd get scared, and i say, you know, what happens if I just get so scared I forget everything? that I've studied. And I got to thinking, you know, if that happens, they're not going to hurt me. And they'll <laughs> say that's, you know, you can expect that from a young preacher. And when I get home, mom will have a good lunch. So I sweated it out and still hadn't got over my stage fright, but it doesn't bother me as much as it used to. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So you graduate fresh out of high school. Uh, you had your own plans. You went to Free Hardeman. Uh, then I saw you went to Lipscomb as well. Um, what became the final, um, what became the thing that pushed you over the edge to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this preaching instead of, uh, the carpentry and, and, and other things you were interested in? Well, daddy helped me with the carpentry. Uh, he had worked for other, other people. For 15 years before that, 
And uh, his boss got out of work, didn't have a contract, so he bought a piece of land and started building a house and sell it, build a house and sell it. So I started working with him. And that was when I thought, I'm going to really learn how to do it. So the first morning I went out, he was laying brick. So I, I scooped up all the mud and put it on the, on the mortar boards and got him plenty of brick. And he was down at one end of the house and I was at the other end. So I just started laying brick. And he looked down there after I'd laid a half a dozen or more, I guess. He didn't say anything. He just picked up each brick and cleaned off the mortar, put it back on the mortar board, <laughs> and stacked them up. Didn't say anything. Didn't criticize. Uh-huh. So I figured, well, that didn't do a lot of good. I might as well forget that. <laughs> he was a, he was excellent. He loved to work by himself because oh, nobody okay. else could do it as well as he did, and he didn't like to explain it. So I just gave up on that idea. So that eliminated the <laughs> house every summer. And then after my first year, uh, Gail and I got married right before the second year. And Brother E. Claude Gardner, who was uh, dean at that time, just said, I notice you've been major in elementary education. You're preaching every Sunday. I understand you do a good job. You need to focus. And so from then on, I majored in Bible. Okay. Okay. Um, so Throughout your uh, journeys, um, just going to get straight into it. Um, what have, what has been some of your um, some of the struggles you faced early on in your in your ministry? Well, everything went well as long as I was doing part time preaching and full time went well. Uh, Brother Tom Holland. Priest at the Yorkville Church of Christ, a church of about a hundred people in West Tennessee, nine months out of the year. And he had a permanent replacement during the summer because he held 13 meetings in a row. So mm-hmm. he asked me if I'd fill in one summer and I did. That was, uh, between my second and third year at Free Tardiman. Well, when all and I was finishing at Lipscomb, and he was there for the lecture, said, where are you going to go when you graduate? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, I think York was ready for a full-time preacher. And uh, he said, I'm going to recommend they contact you. And they did. And so that was my first work. So when I had the opportunity, I was preparing myself for the work I'm doing now. That was my first. I didn't know how, what to call it, but that was my first unintentional interim. Usually when a preacher stays a long time, does a good job, they don't like whoever comes next. And so I followed Tom Holland, who had been there for five years, and he taught homiletics and just was excellent. And they were paying me more money because I was full-time, getting a lot less preacher, and they never did figure out that was much of a bargain. Also, we lived in a house where you couldn't heat and eat at the same time. It had a 60-amp fuse box. And if you turned on that three-stack heater and tried to scramble eggs at the same time, it'd blow all the fuses. And so we froze that first winter. We found oh, a baby man. was coming the next winter, and I talked to the elders, and they said they didn't know anything they could do about that. And so I started looking for a church with a warm house. <laughs> so that was, I guess, my biggest struggle there. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> And I've had an interesting history. Uh, okay. After my first four, 
four churches when I was at the fourth one. I told Gail I'd like to move one more time because the first, I didn't know what I was doing when I went, and I didn't know what I was doing when I left. second one, I got fired. The third one, I resigned without anywhere to go. And I said, I'd like to move one time real slow. <laughs> and figure it out. And so we were able to do that. So I went to my last church. They had had a fuss over two years for a decade. Uh, they had the fuss of 86, fuss of 88, fuss of 90, fuss of 92. I went in 93. They had the fuss of 95 after we got there. And then things smoothed out. We had a, that was the longest ministry I ever had. Wow. 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 So being fired is one of the most painful things I ever had. I, I taught a Bible class on uh, December 19, 1976, and at 10.20, I walked upstairs, and one of the elders said, would you step into my office? And I did, and he said, Brother Jerry, I think you ought to think about resigning this morning. Well, that, you know, I've been studying my sermon all week and didn't have nothing on that in my outline. It shocked me. <laughs> Right. And I walked into the auditorium for services, and the first song we sang was Anywhere is Home. And uh, preached. We only had two elders. I went to the other elder, and I said, when did y'all come up with this idea of firing me this morning? He said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, uh, Brother So-and-so told me I ought to resign this morning. He said, I hadn't heard anything about it. And so that was painful, embarrassing. Uh, but we found a church in Georgia that was willing to hire a fired preacher and, and spent 11 years there, raised our children there, and had a great work. So that's part of the, my education from the University of Hard Knocks. <laughs> um, what was the, um, and you said this was in Madisonville, what was the reason that they uh, wanted to uh, go in a different direction? Well, here's here's the deal. See, I, I didn't know anything about it. We had I had preached a series of sermons on church discipline, and we had done some of that, and so that upset some of the people. And years later, I found out that that elder had gone by the business of one of our deacons and said, you know, we got some people upset. What do you think it'd take to settle everybody down? He said, I think if Jerry could find somewhere else to preach and move, I think that would settle everybody down. But with tears in his eyes, he said, it never occurred to me that he would come tell you that the next morning. This was a new elder that we should never have appointed. He was a great deacon. Loved me, loved Gail, loved the kids. But uh, he just didn't, he, he, he didn't, he shouldn't have been appointed. Uh, because of his inability to make good decisions. And so I got to thinking, why would people come and talk? See, I mean, it's obvious I was right and he is wrong. Mm -hmm. He fired me without even talking to the other elder. And that's a, I wrote a blog one time on the best day to fire your preacher. The day I've come up with is Monday. That's a lot better than between Sunday school and worship. That gives you two days to recuperate for Wednesday and six, six before the next Sunday. But mm -hmm. I got to thinking, why would they talk to him and not talk to me? And I came up with three answers. Number one, uh, 
I didn't handle my anger well at that point in my ministry. The way I dealt with my anger is about every six months I preached a mad sermon. Mm. And I'd stop and point my fingers and raise my voice and tell folks they was going to hell. And then about six months later, I'd do it again. Second thing is that I didn't like criticism. And I'm sure I communicated that very well to people. And number three, I did not avail myself of people who would have been willing to help me work through that. I thought admitting my weakness would ruin me. And so I didn't talk to anybody about it. And so I have learned from that, unless I found out how I played a part in my pain, I probably hadn't worked through it very well. What, either number one, what did I do to contribute to it? Or number two, if I were purely a victim, what can I do to keep that happening again? Mm-hmm. My illustration is if I'm, if I, for in the last two or three months, if I've been the victim of three times drive-by shootings, probably need to buy some uh, bulletproof windshields. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't my fault. I didn't plan that, but mm-hmm. I need to get protected. Otherwise, I'll be a victim. Okay. Um couple of things and and that was that was uh that's an honest answer. Um and you know, um you know, whether it was deserving or not, um probably remains to be uh answered. Uh but he, here's what I don't understand. Why was the uh this one particular elder able to do so without uh consulting with the rest of the staff? He didn't know any better. He didn't understand how folks operate. I don't I doubt if it ever occurred to him. And, and eight and a half years later, I wrote him a letter and said, you know, I don't think that that was done in the best way, but I really believe you did the best you knew how to do that day. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So I believe pretty well everybody does what they think they need to do today. Everything's not right, but they really thought that's the best thing for them to do today. And and why didn't anyone uh, intervene? That's a good question. Okay. That's probably what hurt more than anything else that there wasn't an uprising. You know what? Well, there was really. Uh, the next week, one of the older members heard what had happened, and he called this man out to his uh, house, and he said, "I understand you fired Jerry Barber Sunday morning without talking to the other elder." He said, "Yeah, that's right." He said, "Well, I can't serve under an elder like that." He said. Uh, that's not right. I think mm. you need to resign. And you know what the fellow said? Okay, I'll do that next Sunday. And so that dissolved the eldership. He just pretty well did. He did what it, well, one of the ladies came to me and said, Jerry, I don't understand. Said, we never should have appointed him as an elder. Mm. She said, I knew that. I knew that. I said, I did too. What did you do while he was being considered as an elder to, to address that? She said, I didn't do anything. I said, I didn't either. Look what kind of mess we got ourselves into. If a situation is chronic in any group, it's because everybody likes it the way it is more than what it would take to change it. 
And what I find most people want to do is please everybody and stay comfortable. Mm. And that, you know, uh, path of least resistance makes men and rivers crooked. <laughs> and so that's what got us into it. We just, we just, we just got ourselves into it. And I played a part and she played a part and everybody else played a part and there's where we got to. But I promised the Lord I'd never do that again. Okay. And I had an opportunity to prove that. And it scared the daylights out of me. But I went to another man and his wife and sat down with them and said, I sometimes wonder. He was being considered as an elder. And I said, I sometimes wonder who's in charge of the house. You or you. And uh, I put it off till the Saturday night before the deadline. <laughs> mm. I kept finding other things to do every night. Why? Because I like to be comfortable, and I don't mm. like confrontation. I understand that. I understand that. Um, okay, let's switch gears just a tad. Um, you being a, um, let's just say, a, a traveling minister, um, you you you've had the um and I will say it's the fortunate opportunity to be able to uh speak at different uh congregations. Uh that being said, um why aren't um churches uh bringing up their own preachers in the house um that understands the lay of the land if you will um a little bit better as opposed to um, looking to Lipscomb, Free Hardeman, um, Southwestern, uh, any of these places. Why is there such a sh- struggle or, um, or is it a lack of willingness to let someone else within the congregation be the new minister? That, that, that is a good question. I because don't really- it, I instantly think of Moses to Joshua. I think yep. of, of think of Paul to Timothy and, you know, Paul being in this Ephesus congregation longer than anywhere else. And Timothy was right under his wing. Um, some, they have somebody that they're familiar with. They know their struggles they know their successes. They have a good familiar relationship with the people, but oftentimes, especially I would say, Based on my knowledge, especially since maybe the seventies to the eighties, you have preachers being recruited and it has this sports free agent kind of feel. Um, why aren't they, why aren't more people being brought up within the ranks? I started teaching a, I call it a future preachers class when my son was in the first grade, taught it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was for boys six to 12. And we did Bible verses, Bible facts. Uh, they got to lead singing if they wanted to, read scripture. Had a little pulpit my dad built just the right size for that age boy. Uh, we went for 13 weeks. We had graduation for them. We had future preacher of the week. Future preacher of the week got to stand with me and shake hands as folks were coming out of the church building. They sat with me on the front seat just like preachers did at that time before they got up to preach. I uh, had a radio program right before our, work, our Sunday school in Madisonville, so they 
the future preacher of the week will go with me to the radio station and read a verse on the radio. And then I told them one of the best things about being a preacher is you get to eat a lot. And so that Sunday they would also, Gail, we would invite them and their parents and their brothers and sisters. And we, we would pretty well eat one cow of hamburger meat every year. And so we'd do that. And, uh, so I did that for 20 years and then I taught men's training classes. And some of those people have gone on to become preachers and elders and deacons. Uh, so I've tried to do that. Okay. Is it, uh, I don't know, really know how to word this. Um, is it the fault, um, of the prior evangelists or is it the fault of maybe the eldership as to why this isn't organically happening? Yes. <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> if a situation is chronic, it's because everybody likes it the way it is more than what it would take to change it. Mm. I okay. wonder, I wonder, and and I'm in agreement with, with the way we worship and the way we teach God's plan of salvation and, and all of that. But I wonder if we hadn't spent more time restoring the church and getting everything just right. Mm-hmm. And then not only do that, but then tell everybody else they're going to hell and spend most of our time fussing at folks who aren't even there. They're down the road at some other church or out here and don't ever go to church. When Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And so maybe what I need to do is be more of a disciple of Jesus and major in that and do it like he did it. That's the way he did it. You may have seen The Chosen, uh, this TV series that's telling how Jesus selected his 12. Of course, you mm-hmm. read it in four good books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. I like the passage in Mark where he chose them to, and the first thing he says is to be with him. The way I was encouraged to be a preacher is I hung out a lot with Ward Mayberry, rabbit hunting and fishing and uh, squirrel hunting, and just I was with him a lot. We had a deal on, on dove season. He'd come pick me up off the bus, and we'd go to a dove field. He had a beautiful, expensive Browning shotgun with gold inlay. I had a double-barrel, cheap shotgun I bought secondhand. (laughs) And the rule was that I shot with mine, he shot with his, until he got his limit. And when he got his limit, he let me use his real fancy shotgun, and he took mine. And so we both got something out of that. He got to kill a lot more doves, and I got to shoot a real fancy shotgun. <laughs> but all those kind of things. And then we'd we'd have game dinners. He'd cook, and we'd eat doves and squirrels and all the stuff we'd killed and go fishing. And so that that I saw somebody that really enjoyed life, and uh, I looked up to him as my preacher. And so that that's kind of what he did. And I returned to that congregation 50 years later and preached on a Sunday night, and Ward and Idell were there and just had a good party. That's good. Um, 
are, I like what you said about we're too focused on, uh, folks that aren't even within our assembling anyway. Um, another thing, um, that I've inquired about, um, and not only do I think maybe, um, those with, within certain houses aren't bringing up their own people, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about comfortability. Are we too comfortable relying on these Christian colleges to provide our um, ministers and elders or whatnot, as opposed to uh, putting in the work in-house? That's, that's a good possibility because that's, that's what usually happens. We go to those schools and, uh, that's where that's where we get most of our training. Because okay. because what what seems to happen, um, and and you you've lived this life uh, in the ministry longer than I have, but what kind of seems to happen is um, we may get a young, hotshot preacher, um, and kind of your situation may rub somebody wrong. Um. He's out of there within five years, and then it's wash, rinse, repeat until three or four preachers later. And maybe, maybe they they get it right if the church isn't split in half. Um, is is this is this cycle becoming uh, a problem for the churches of Christ? Well, of course, that's the reason I've been doing what I've been doing the last 15 years. Right. Here's the general rule. When a preacher stays a long time, and that's defined as five years or more, the -hmm. church is not going to like the next preacher. I volunteer to be the one they don't like. (laughs) And so during the six to 18 months that I'm there, they they hopefully have time to grieve the loss of their last preacher and gain more wisdom on getting the next one. Uh, I've served in two churches as an unintentional interim. I mentioned the first, mm-hmm. and then later on in my ministry, I was five years. And uh, I mean, it was just clear I wasn't their preacher, and they mm-hmm. told it in a number of different ways. Right after I arrived, we were waiting to sell our house in Georgia, so my wife would come up every two weeks, and we were eating one night after services, and everybody was at one long table except two people. They were back over across the room, backs toward us, faces toward the wall. Wow. My wife said, tell them, come on over here. we got some room right over here. And everybody just kept eating, kept eating. She said, well, we got plenty of room. They could sit with us. And third time she said that, they said, Gail, they don't want to sit with y'all. They like the last preacher, and they don't like y'all. Mm. Another man, after I'd been there six months, that he'd talk to you. He said, I didn't like you when you first came. I didn't know Jerry Barber, but I didn't like Jerry Barber. I liked my last preacher. I don't think you should have fired him. If they fired him, I shouldn't have fired him the way they fired him. I said, it sounds like Mama died, Daddy got married, and you don't like your stepmother. He said, that's it. <laughs> Another lady, yeah. well, every year at Christmas, she'd get around me, and she said, well, I, I, I cook Brother John his favorite cakes, and he just loves coconut cake, and every Christmas, I 
I cook him a coconut cake and take to him, and I just took him here this morning. Well, I was thinking this, didn't say it. I really like coconut cake. And I don't have to have the whole thing. If you just give me one slice, that would feed me for a year. But it was, uh, but it was some of the best education I ever got for what I'm doing now. I know what it feels like to be rejected for no sin except just showing up after a good preacher's been there 15 years. Wow. And so I'm doing everything I can to try to make it easier on the folks that come next. Yeah. I mean, if they had their own person, I think a lot of that would be alleviated. So this is going to this is going to sound odd, and I know in the Bible it says that um, we basically need to respect the, the elders' um, rule of the congregation. Is that passage maybe stretched a little bit too much out of context, where it becomes the elders' way or the highway? Are you telling or asking? I'm asking. I'm asking. I think, all right, this is just my observation from coming up on 61 years of preaching. We'll be Mm. here in about a month and a half. We hear a lot about vision and mission and all of that. Here's my observation. I think most elders that I have been pretty closely acquainted with Their mission is to keep everybody happy and to stay as comfortable as they can for themselves. Mm. And so that's going to carry you just all over the place. And so they don't have any idea what to do. Uh, I think a good leader listens to the group. A good quarterback better listen to the right tackle and left tackle and the ends and the fullback and everybody else. Somebody's got to call a play or they're going to call you for a delay of the game. But if you don't listen to those folks who are backing you up, you're going to get sacked. And that's what happens in a lot of churches. Uh, one of my interims, boy, it's just, it's just something else. Uh, and I got to talking. One man came to me and he told me what happened to him 15 years before. He was over the bus ministry and every Monday he'd take the buses down and get them washed. And one Monday he did that and the man told him, said, I don't wash your buses anymore. He said, why not? He said, well, because I've been told I'm not. He said, who told you that? He said, one of the elders. He said, well, I'm in charge of the bus ministry. He said, one of the elders told me that they weren't going to be washed here anymore. And he went to the elder and he said, why'd you do that? He said, I don't have to tell you that. I'm an elder. I can do anything I want to do. Oh, wow. And he said, what the other elders say when you told them? He said, it'll make any difference. I'm an elder. I can do anything I want to do. That is not a New Testament shepherd model. Amen. And so that's the reason. Uh, that's what, See, the longer you stay, the more you find out about what's going on. And it's embedded in the DNA of that family. The the supporting event that sent me to that congregation on one Sunday two or three years ago, three elders, one preacher, one youth minister, and one secretary all resigned the same Sunday. And uh, there was just, you know, that kind of attitude doesn't produce real good relationships. Right, right. I go to Acts chapter 20, and I preach a sermon, and and I come over it several times. Elders need to take care of elders. 
They need to shepherd each other. They need to know what's going on in their lives, and they need to oversee each other. And here's my statement. If shepherds, 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 shepherds will better shepherd the sheep, but if shepherds don't shepherd, shepherds, shepherds probably won't shepherd the sheep. <laughs> That's good. And where I saw that was at Bear's Chapel. Bear's Chapel had five elders, divided eldership before I went. Two on one side, two on the other side, and one wouldn't take sides. He is in the middle. And uh, on Father's Day of uh, 1995, all but one elder resigned. We appointed new elders. Not a one of them had ever served a day in their life. Mm -hmm. And so they said, what we're going to do for the first year is we're going to read the Bible and find out what the Bible says that shepherds, elders, bishops, overseers need to be doing. We're going to try to do it. That's the first thing. And number two, we're going to try to learn how to get along with each other. And we're going to spend time doing that. And that's what they did. For the finest men I ever served with in my life. And they were shepherds. They were busy people. Some of the busiest folks I'd ever seen. But they made time. Okay, we got this funeral coming up. Who's going to be there? We got this... And, you know, and here an elder that travels quite a bit is out in Oklahoma. He rents a car and goes 200 miles and shows up at a funeral with one of the members. That's impressive. Mm. But that's – and and, and one, of the, one of the things we did each time we met once a month, we'd go around the room and say, how's it been at your house for the last 30 days? Mm. And we'd talk about that. Most time it's just routine. Here's the one I remember. One of the elders said, okay, since the last time we met, my daddy died. Mother's moved in with us. She couldn't take care of herself. My wife had her third back operation. We wish she had never had her first because she's in worse shape than she was before her first operation. Last week, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and Friday I lost my job. Jeez. You know what we did? Let's pray. Mm-hmm. We prayed for that brother. Those shepherds shepherded the shepherds. And so it wasn't a surprise that they shepherded the sheep. My thing is, and this is one of the things I deal with in new members, uh, new shepherds orientation. If you're not willing to do that with three or four other men in, in the leadership group, what makes you think that the other Two or three hundred folks are going to come and sit down and talk to you about stuff that you won't even talk to your fellow elders about. They're not. Mm. It'll just ooze out the pores of your skin. But if you will do that, folks will come to you because you and see you practice on each other. It reminds mm. me of an elder who told me it's kind of like dental school. You study and you learn all your your biology and all of that, and then he says you practice on these little plastic dummies and makeup, you know. And and then he says you get to the point where you pair up and you say, uh, I'll do a root canal on you today and you do one on me tomorrow. Well, how are you going to do it? Man, I'm going to do it the best job I can because I want to do a good job. And secondly, I don't want him hurting me. (laughs) Right. <laughs> and so, if elders will practice on each other when they have deaths in the family, when they have uh, uh, job losses, whatever comes their way, they'll be they'll be up to it when the other members come. That sounds good. And um, 
I'm sure I got elders that are listening to the program. And I don't want this to be a uh, beat up the elder session, but there's obviously some in-house issues that can be talked about. And hopefully this is something um, that can uh, give those a good refreshing look on things. Um, let me ask this also um, for ministers that do hang around uh, past this five year uh, period. Um, how can elders be of better service uh, to the preachers to decrease burnout? Because, uh, you know, we look at Acts 6, um, where a lot of the burdens are taken away from the apostles so they can focus on the word. And in my experience, you know, you have the preacher that not only he's doing um, two sermons on a Sunday, He's probably handling either a Sunday school class or a Wednesday class or something. Um, he's doing all the hospital visits. He's doing all the phone calls. And uh, sometimes his fate is left in the hands of elders that they that, that they are. Let's just say there's some that are doing uh, some work, uh, but he's getting burnt out. Um, and then they may have his fate may lie in their hands. Um, what can uh, elders better do to help the uh, evangelists? Well, obviously be, be, be aware of what's going on and what their job description is and what the preacher's job description is. Mm. What I found out is that I was going to have to be responsible for myself. And so through the years, I have contracted pretty well all of that and, and, and I sign a contract before I go that describes my job description and how I operate. And, and we settle all that before I get there. Um, if I just kind of hang around and do everything, well, that's just what I found. It took me 50 years to get this into my contract. But you talk about liberating. For me and elders, I have a clause that says all criticism of Jerry Barber goes directly to Jerry Barber, and he will welcome it. Jerry Barber does not accept anonymous criticism. And so if elders, and I've had it happen a time or two, they forget what they, what they promise. They say, a lot of people are upset. I said, wait a minute, who are they? Well, I can't tell you. That's confidential. Then I can't listen to it. It says in my contract that I don't accept anonymous criticism, mm. uh, which means we believe Matthew eighteen fifteen. if your brother misses the mark, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Oh, mm. they said, I forgot all about that. Yeah, I'll tell him to talk to you. Good. That's the way it's supposed to operate. Right. And so that and all the way to filling out my W-2 form, uh, I, that's all in the contract. That makes sense. And so I meet with the elders. Some elders don't want the preachers meeting with them. They want really? Them. Yeah. Uh, a number of a number of them don't don't want to. They just don't, they want to make a decision, tell you what they want you to do, and that's it. And so I tell them, you may want to operate that way. If you do, you need another preacher because that's not the way I operate. If I'm mm-hmm. going to be there, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to back you up and. When you make a hard decision and people come to criticize you, number one, I'll tell them to talk to you. Number two, I'll say, I'll tell you this. I know there are different ways of looking at that, and it was a hard decision, but I promise you this, 
they spent time and discussion and prayer when they made that decision. I can tell them that if I meet with them. But if I don't ever meet with them, I can say, well, I don't know either. I don't know how they came up with that. Mm. So I don't want to be on a team where I don't know how it operates. Right. Um, why is it, uh, why are things so tough on a, um, uh, uh, for a congregation to move on from a long term, uh, for a preacher that's been there for a long term? What, what's usually, uh, so difficult outside the obvious, you know, loving the guy? Um, what, what, what's the, the, the biggest turnoff with the uh, new preacher coming in? Okay. What a lot of people say is just preacheritis. You need to tell them get it, get over it. <laughs> I used to be very critical of Mrs. Job, and I would make an observation, something like this: Job lost all his camels and his donkeys and all his children, and he took away everything except his wife. And the devil left her there because she is more aggravation than if she had been taken away. But after thinking about that for 30 or 40 years, I've never gone to the funeral of all my children in one day. Mm. I've never had my house to burn down without insurance. I've never had my savings wiped out where I had nothing to eat the next day. And so I don't think Mrs. Job had donkeyitis or cameliitis. I think she was a lady in deep grief. I often tell people I don't hold people accountable for what they say and do at weddings and funerals because they're not in their right mind either time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's the reason. See, God said, you know, we better not just drop Jesus down there out of a parachute when he's 30 years old. Why don't we send somebody to get ready for him? And so he sent John the Baptist to make a way. He said, we're going to we're going to take big old bulldozers and scrape off the tops of the mountains and fill in the valleys, and we're going to make a path so this man can walk straight. Mm. So he sent yeah. an interim minister, and uh, that's the way he prepared for him. And, and so I have found that that works pretty well because I come in with job security to a church where I'm preaching. I've already quit, so they can't fire me. I'm leaving in 18 months at the longest. I'm not going to stay any longer than 18 months. Wow. So I spent the first day talking about preachers and how to treat them. And uh, first first sermon series on Luke 9:23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, daily and follow me. We're not ready to look for a preacher. We're going to look at ourselves real hard. And mm. so we're asking ourselves, are we the kind of congregation that would attract the kind of preacher that we need at this time? More specifically, am I the kind of Christian that a real good preacher would just love to work with? Mm. And if I'm not, I need to get that straightened out. Because if a preacher's worth his salt, you're going to check his references, but he's also going to check your references. Mm. And he's going to find out what kind of folks you are and a good preacher don't want to come but his head against the wall. He wants to work with people who want to work with him. And so if you're not that kind of person, you're not ready to start looking for a preacher. And so we talk about that. Everybody's trying out. 
And uh, so that's one of the things that I do, and I keep talking about it all the time, all the time. Mm. That's interesting. Um, so let's get into um, more of your um, New Shepherds orientation. Okay. Um, I'm sure this helps with all your experience, and, and, and it kind of goes right into what you're saying, how to make not only the congregation more attractive, if you will, but how to better um, shepherd the saints. Um, what made you come up with that idea? Well, I didn't. I had a call from Henry Wilhoyt, who was an elder at the Fairlane Church in Shepherdville, Tennessee. This was in the fall of uh, 2013. And he said, Jerry, we just appointed five elders. Four of these elders have never served a day in their life. Do you think you could put some things together to help them find out what they're getting into and do a better job? I said, well, probably could. He had a cabin in Gatlinburg, and so we went up to Gatlinburg, and we spent six hours on Friday and six hours on Saturday. We had the Mm -hmm. elders and their wives. And that worked pretty well, so the next year I did one for another church. In total now, I've done 21 of these. And what we do is get together for 12 hours. We have elders, wise preachers, and wives, and we talk about a lot of things you and I have been talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you show appreciation? I went to one church. One church was a party church. They they would have a birthday party for me and my wife. Maybe the next year an anniversary party. Next year they'd have a party on the anniversary of when we came. And tell, they'd tell us how glad we they were that we were there. Next church I went, and five years later, they hadn't done a thing. Now, here's one of the things that really helped our relationship. We had a counselor from Atlanta who drove up to Dalton, Georgia, every Monday, and he counseled in our library for five hours free counseling at the discretion of the elders. Every first and third Monday, we had an appointment with him, 7 o'clock. No agenda. We just talked about whatever's on our mind. He set a structure where it's safe to talk about anything you want to. And wow, that was powerful. Mm. And so in this Shepherd's Orientation Workshop, we talk about a number of issues. I start out, I emphasize two things. Our hope is in our pain. See, my observation is most people are trying to get as comfortable as they can. Mm-hmm. My observation is you can't win Friday night's football game if you put all the players on a recliner and let them play video games Monday through Thursday. <laughs> right. You gotta get out there and run and do your push-ups and hit hard. And so by Friday night, you say, man, that is easy compared to practice all week long. Mm-hmm. And so I tell them that one of the things I'm gonna to try to do this weekend is make you very uncomfortable. I'm gonna to try to do it in a loving way and not be ugly, but I hope you get real uncomfortable because that's the way you grow. I've run three marathons and several half marathons in my life, and I never did one without getting sore because you gotta up the mileage. I don't usually run that mileage, so I have to start three months ahead of time, and when I start putting more pressure, it gets sore. And I don't know any other way to grow than that. Jesus didn't say, if you want to be my disciple, be as comfortable as you can. He said, take up your cross. Cross is not for recreation. Mm. Uh, the second thing we do is look at our rules. Our rules are the way we do stuff around here. 
Family rules are usually unconscious, unspoken, understood, and contradictory, which means we don't think about it, we don't talk about it. If you violate one, you are in serious trouble, and many times they bump against each other. Uh, and so we, we look at that. And over the weekend, we talk. First of all, I have them to read two books. And we discuss those books that have some good ideas in them about leadership. And we set some goals. What I had a friend one time who asked me if I would come to the church where he preached and, and uh, get the elders to set goals. Or no, get the con- he wanted me to get the congregation to set goals. I said, well, I don't know. I said, did the elders set goals? He said, probably not. I said, why in the world would I want to come and try to get them to do something that their leaders aren't doing? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, let's go at it in a different direction. We also have several modules. One of those is how to eliminate conflict in the church. And I have a track that I tell them Jesus wrote it and I printed it. How did Jesus say deal with conflict? Matthew 5, 23 and following. If you know somebody has something against you, go go settle it. Leave worship and go, go settle it. And then come back and offer your gift. Something more important than worship, that's being reconciled. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you'd come talk to me. Okay, that's Matthew 18, 15, 16, 17. If your brother sinned against you, you tell him and then take with you one or two more and then tell the church. Yeah. And the reason we have conflicts in the church is because we have gossip in the church. Proverbs yeah. twenty six twenty, where there's no wood, the fire goes out; where there's no tailbear, contention ceases. And so I have an I have an exercise or two that I show them how to how to eliminate gossip. And uh, we talk about shepherd shepherding shepherds, and uh, we divide up the. One of the questions people ask, why did you invite women? I said, well, first one I ever had, that's what they did. And I got to thinking about it. It's a pretty good idea. You can be a bad elder with a good wife or a bad wife. Mm. You cannot be a good elder with an uncooperative, discouraging wife. It takes two to mess it up. Or it takes two to make it work and one to mess it up. So they need to know. How to deal. And they have some special problems. What do you do when somebody criticizes your husband? What do you do when somebody starts sending message to your husband through you? And it'd be good for all the wives to have a repertoire of responses, how they responded to those things. And so we do training for the, for the wives. I have them to compliment each other. And we talk about how to receive a compliment. You don't deny it and tell the person they're crazy. You're not really that good. You say, thank you. That's the way you receive a compliment. Thank you. And then later on, if you, in fact, the next day, we go back into another group and we have to criticize each other. And the proper way to receive a criticism is to say, thank you. Anybody that finds salmonella in my refrigerator and tells me about it is not hurting me. They're helping me. Mm. But what if it is destructive criticism? Mm-hmm. Well, what I choose to do is just let people criticize and tell them I love it. And I'll decide whether it's destructive or constructive. I promise to do three things when people criticize me. Number one, I'll listen. Number two, I'll write it down. Number three, I'll think about it. And I just beg people to tell me how to improve. And there's a secret to that. The more I ask for it, the less I get. Mm. And so I 
Try not to be reactive. I just say, thank you. Can you tell me something else I could improve? I wonder if that's the first thing I've ever done that's disappointed you. My observation is that most of the time, the first time somebody comes to me with a problem, that's my tryout sermon. And if I mess that up, they won't come back again. They're not going to hire me as their friend that they can talk to. But if I do pretty well with that, they may come back in two or three weeks and then a week or two after that and say, here's what I really had on my mind. Hmm. That's good. That's, that's, that's gainful knowledge right there. And so that's what I, we, we, we have a module on criticism during the weekend. Elders need to be able to be able to listen to that. Uh, and, uh, cause they make mistakes. I make mistakes. Everybody does. And that's the way you get along with people. Um, so why haven't you decided to uh, settle down anywhere and be an elder at this point? You know, that's a good question. Uh, when <laughs> I went to Bears Chapel, and it was that kind of transition that I told my wife I wanted. I tried out for them in 1988 and didn't go. Uh, I, I didn't think, well, I would have been an unintentional interim. They had just released a preacher that had been there eight years and everybody loved him and so there was another man who went as their unintentional interim so four years later I got another call uh, from one of the elders and said will you have lunch with with me and another elder and I said who's paying for it he said I am I said yep that's pretty well my policy so we met at Shoney's in Brentwood and I was we were eating a full meal. I was just getting started on my salad, and he said, "Jerry, we are in a mess at Bear's Chapel. So we got all kinds of problems." And I said, "Praise the Lord." <laughs> he said, "What do you mean by that?" I said, "Well, what I mean by that is that usually elders aren't this honest this early. Usually they let you sell your house and move to a new place, and then six months later they say, Jerry, something we've been needing to talk to you about. We've got some real big problems here. But I said, I haven't even got into my salad, and you're already telling me the truth. <laughs> and and so we just kept talking and kept talking and kept talking. And uh, by the time, that was in September, by the time the elders and I figured out that we could probably work together was in January. And I said, I don't want to try out sermon. I want to try out workshop. Y'all got so much conflict going on that uh, if you don't want me, I want you to decide that before I get there. Mm. I want to do a workshop. And then every night after I get through preaching, I want 30 minutes of questions for me and Gail. And you can ask us anything you want to. So one of the questions was, if you came as our preacher, would you consider serving as an elder uh, if you were asked to? I said, yes. If I, by that time, if I were independently wealthy, I would consider it. <laughs> well, what was the next question? What has that got to do with it? I said, man, it's got a whole lot to do with it. I said, if I come here and I'm your preacher... And I'm also an elder. If I do something as an elder that you don't like, all you got to do is to get me out of there is just fire me as a preacher. And uh, I'll have to go somewhere else so I can buy groceries. But mm. if I'm independently wealthy, you can fire me as your preacher. And I can stay here and aggravate the daylights out of you as an elder. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we had the fuss in 95, I was asked to serve. And the man said, I don't know if you're independently wealthy or not. So I stayed in, in, in the running until the last weekend. 
and I kept a record of what people told me. About half told me, we think it's a great idea, we'd really appreciate it. Others said, I don't think it's a good idea, conflict of interest. Uh, one lady had the most uh, original uh, suggestion. She said, about this elder business, I don't think you ought to be an elder. But <laughs> she said, we're in a mess, and I think you could probably help us get it straightened up. So I think you ought to do it for a while. I said, man, that's a great idea. I want to be an interim preacher one of these days. I'll consider being an interim elder. But uh, I decided that uh, from the input I've got, it would probably be a good idea not to do that. And so I didn't. Okay. But I like my wife and I both really enjoy what we're doing. Uh, we're learning more all the time, and I think we're doing doing good. Uh, right now, I'm teaching a leadership training class. These, this congregation has no elders, and that was the deci- one of the deciding factors. I had three churches that were talking to me at the time I was ready to make the next move. And uh, one, they were about the same size. They had the same circumstances. Their preacher had left, and he and the group had started another church. But uh, the, the other church had elders. This church had no elders. And I thought maybe I could be helpful there and encourage them in that direction. And so we're working on that. Um, you know what? You, you, you just made me think of something else. Um, why has it become acceptable practice for elders to automatically be able to hire fire preachers when the evangelist has the um has the right within a congregation to um make his subjective criticisms towards the elder how how did this how did this become this one-sided thing? Because when I think of when I think of elders and preachers and deacons, I kind of look at it in my own kind of way. Like, uh, are you are are our federal system? You have the executive branch, you have the Congress, and you have the um, judicial branch, and they all kind of work together as a triangle. But now it, it has this uh, it just has this overwhelming thing with elders and and a lot of Congress. I don't know if it's most. I don't want to broad stroke. But it just seems like whatever the elders say goes instead of, you know, the, the evangelists having some more say so within the congregation. How did this happen? Well, I think it happened because uh, Paul and Silas went on the first missionary journey. In Acts 14, they appointed elders in every church. Mm-hmm. Titus was left at Creek so that he could set things in order and, and ordain elders in every city. Here is my opinion. Mm-hmm. For years, I thought selecting a point was one one movement. Uh, we need to select and appoint elders. Act six says no. That's two. That's two different activities. When it got time for them to appoint leaders, this time people to take care of the widows, the apostle said, "You select." Speaking to the whole multitude, "You select. We'll appoint." Mm-hmm. Old Testament, Exodus 18.25, it says Moses chose men to be over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. However, Deuteronomy chapter 1 says that Moses chose to let the people choose. He was speaking to all Israel, and he said, you chose them, 
and I appointed them. Mm-hmm. So Old Testament, New Testament, the group selects, leaders ordain. Right. And so it's my thinking that uh, Paul and Silas and Titus would go to a congregation and let the congregation, because they knew the men better than the preacher, they would do the selection and the evangelists would do the ordaining. Mm-hmm. And what I teach and what I understand to be the biblical way to do it is that elders don't need to select elders. Uh, what happens in most congregations, the elders select elders and they get the boys that's going to agree with them on everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that's, that's what we did at Bears Chapel. Uh, of course, we didn't have any elders, so the elders couldn't select the elders. So the congregation selected those four men. In a couple of years, one resigned. Next year, they wanted to add people to it, and to the eldership. And they said, reckon who we can get to serve with us. I said, what do you mean you can get? They said, well, don't you think we need more elders? Yeah, sure do. Well, don't you think we need to select some? I said, no. I said, let me ask you a question. Who selected you? They said, well, congregation did. I said, do you think they did a good job? <laughs> and they, with all the humility they could muster, said, yeah. I said, well, I do too. And I said, you're four of the finest men I've ever worked with in my life. Do you think they're three years dumber than they were when you were appointed? If they were smart enough to do it then, I wonder if they could do it now. And you know what those men did? <laughs> they called a meeting of the men of the congregation, and they selected the chairman of the past selection committee to uh, take nominations from the men as to who would be the next selection committee. And they participated only as individual members and not as an eldership. Mm. And so the congregation selected the next. And I think that's the way it needs to be done. Well, that's what, see, if anybody should ever have been able to select the best men, it should have been the apostles. Jesus selected them. Jesus taught them. Jesus trained them. And so if the apostles were to come to me and I was in the congregation, they say, y'all need, I said, no, y'all go ahead and do it. Y'all a lot smarter than we are. We, we didn't pal around with Jesus for three years like you all did. They said, no, that's not the way it operates. You select, we'll ordain. And you know what it says both in Deuteronomy 1 and Matthew um, Acts 6? The saying pleased the whole multitude. Well, of course it did. They got to do what they wanted to do, what they thought was in their best interest and the interest of the church. Um, before we wrap it up, um, explain this, uh, cause I, you, you keep yourself in good health. Um, and you, and you talked about running your marathons. Um, how did this barefoot running, <laughs> how did this come into effect? Let me back up 52 years ago. I'd held a gospel meeting and went on a week's vacation. When I came home, my dress pants wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't fit. So I had two choices, either buy new clothes or lose weight. So I started uh, reading about running, and I read Major Cooper's book and some others, and I started running to try to get get in better shape. And uh, years it was 
if I felt like it and it wasn't too cold, too hot, too wet, too dry. And then I had a conversion experience 10 years later. My wife bought me my first pair of running shoes. And I read Jim Fix's book, The Complete Book of Running, and his enthusiasm just oozed out the pages. And so for the last uh, 50, 42 years, I've enjoyed it. I, I, I like it. And in the fall of 2009, I read a blog post about barefoot running. And I got to thinking, that was fun when I was five <laughs> years old. Every summer, as soon as mother would let me, I'd take my shoes off, get my feet tough, and I'd play barefoot all summer long. And I thought if that was fun when I was five, why wouldn't it be fun at 65? And so I, it was, I thought it's too cold to get started, and I was afraid I'd forget. So I wrote a note on my iPhone, start running barefooted in March. And I read three books over the winter. And uh, been doing it ever since. It's 50 degrees and above. Wow. The theory is it's good for you. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, Christopher Mac, Mac, Christopher MacDougall uh, wrote a book on Born to Run, and it's about a tribe of people in Mexico who run a hundred miles at a time and outrun horses. And they run barefooted or in very thin sandals. Hmm. And, and that was my motivation book. And then I read two or three for methods. And so I worked out a plan on how I was going to work into it. And uh, my goal was to run the Franklin Classic, a 10K on Labor Day, barefooted. And I did that and been doing it ever since. Wow. So how, how do you keep your feet in good shape with all that? <laughs> they uh, they get tough. I eased <laughs> into it very gradually, and I worked out a plan. Uh, I, I run usually three days a week. So the first day, I ran and came back to the apartment, took off my socks and shoes, and just cooled down walking around the sidewalks, maybe a quarter of a mile, slowly. Did that those three days. Next week, I ran to a quarter of a mile of the apartment, took my socks and shoes off, then a half, then three quarters, and then a mile, then I added a mile a week. And so in 15 weeks, I was running barefooted all the time. And uh, so, your feet get tough, keep running. <laughs> tough feet for a tough preacher, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, also, tell the people about your uh, ventriloquism. Well, when I was a young fella, about 10 years old, we didn't have a TV. We didn't get a TV until I was in the eighth grade, but our next-door neighbors had them. And I went over and watched Paul Winch on Jerry Mahoney, and I was just intrigued by that. And uh, I asked for a dummy for Christmas that year. And so Mother and Daddy bought me a Jerry Mahoney dummy. And so I have been talking to dummies for 67 years. Uh, and I uh, uh, used him until one morning I was getting ready to do a home demonstration club meeting and the string broke. And I went a, two or three years without one. And 
and I got another one and named him Jack. And then when we moved to Dalton, Georgia, I got a Christmas bonus, and my wife encouraged me to buy a professional dummy and uh, got Cousin Zeke from Coon Creek and been using him ever since. But I just read Paul Winter wrote a wrote an article in the Book of Knowledge on how to become a ventriloquist. There's only three things to do. Number one is talk without moving your lips. Number two, change your voice. Number three, pull the string at the right time. So I would get in front of a mirror and I just try to hold my mouth still. I tell people the way I did. I got a long tooth right here. I put it on on my bottom teeth, and I just say. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers, of course, on this continent, a new nation conceived in literature and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. And I, I'd say the night before Christmas or anything else and just kept doing that. And I was already talking without moving my mouth when I got Jerry Mahoney and been doing that ever since. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. I may have to use that clip. <laughs> that's impressive. Um, Brother Barbara, just one last thing. Um, since you've been at this so long, um, give the people some of your best, um, Bible study tips. Uh, how can we grow in our faith and our knowledge and wisdom of our Lord and Savior? Uh, well, the way I do it is, uh, I listen to the Bible twice a year. I listen to once while I'm shaving and once while I'm driving. And I I usually pick out a new translation every year. Second thing is that I read a chapter of the Bible aloud every morning. I find that I pick up things reading aloud that I don't pick up any other way. I pick this idea up somewhere. When you read a passage, you need to ask three questions. What did you learn about God? What did you learn about human beings, about man? And number three, what do I need to do as a result of what I've read? Hmm. And that's that's been real helpful to me. When I go to a church that has a staff, which means one other person than me, we have a weekly staff meeting. And that's one of the things we do. We pick, pick out a book of the Bible. We read a chapter. Uh, that's the first thing we do in staff meeting, and we think about it, and we discuss it, and we study it. Uh, that's good. And that's my good. best, I, I just said this Sunday in a sermon, one of the best ways to study the Bible is to close your Bible and think about it. Some of my best Bible study comes when I'm jogging. Another thing that I did, I started, uh, when I first started full-time preaching, 1967, I started memorizing. I did that as a kid growing up. The congregation where I grew up, small church. But one of the things we did on Wednesday night, we came down from class, we stood in the front and everybody said a memory verse before we sat down. And people would compliment me and say, that's great. And then I'd memorize two verses and then three and then the 23rd Psalm, then the Beatitudes. And so I've been doing it here and there, but I started doing a book at a time. Uh, I started with the book of James and, and then worked through several books of the New Testament. And I bought a book called You Can Memorize God's Word by Marlon S. Hoffman when I came back from graduation at Lipscomb in June of 1967. And so I've been going through that process the way he talks about doing it uh, ever since. I am 77 years old. 
and I don't memorize anymore. I call it mental jogging. I go through the same process, but I can't. Uh, the last time I remember doing that was my last full-time work, and I quoted the 11th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes during one of our Bible studies at Barry's Chapel. Mm-hmm. But I still do it. I tell people my forgettery works better than my memory. If I didn't keep filling it up, filling it up, I'd be empty. So I just keep on putting it in and putting it in and putting it in. That's good, preacher. That's and good. when you memorize, you can drive and have Bible study all at the same time and not have to dodge off the road. You can <laughs> get it out of your mind and study. Mm-hmm. And, and well, I think Jesus probably did a pretty good job of that. When the devil came to him, he said, let me, let me tell you what it says in Deuteronomy. And he just pulled those verses right out and did what he said he ought to do. Right, right. That's good, preacher. Keep that, keep that fire lit. Yeah. <laughs> Brother Barbara, I will definitely be in touch with you for some, uh, uh, tips on some things, uh, that I can probably polish up on in my life. Uh, very, very much appreciated your time tonight. Could I do a commercial before we go? Oh, absolutely. And you know what? Tell us about your websites, too, and your blog. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay, websites is newshepherdsorientation.com. That's one on leadership. And the other one is betweenpreachers.com or jerrybarber.com, J-E-R-R-I-E, B-A-R-B-E-R. But my wife is writing a book of her life, and it is powerful. Hmm. Uh, and it'll be out hopefully in two or three months. Okay. She, her mother died when she was four. Oh. She went to live with some family. The first, that didn't work out well. She went to live with her grandmother, and her grandmother beat her and her brother to the welfare department, took them away from, from the family. And then they went to a couple more uh, children's homes, and then she went to Child Haven, a children's home in Cullman, Alabama. And wow, it was, it was great. And, uh, we got married and when she got to be in her forties, this stuff came back to haunt her. She was having nightmares and night sweats and vomiting. And this counselor that I told you about, James Jones, uh, she started seeing him and part of her therapy was writing her life story. And he encouraged her to write it down and publish it. And she's been writing through the years since the last fall. We decided it's about time if we're going to publish it to do it. And uh, so hopefully it'll be out. There's a ghostwriter working with her to put it all together. If anybody would like to have a the fifth revision of that, I'm trying to get a 1,000 people to read it before it's published on Amazon. Okay. If they will email me at Jerry, J-E-R-R-I-E, at Barber Clippings, B-A-R-B-E-R-C-L-I-P-P-I-N-G-S dot com, we'll send you a free copy of that to read and uh, hope you'll say something about it on Amazon when it's launched. Okay. And um, what's, what's the working title of her book? Uh, Fleecy Clouds. And it has to do with a story that's in there. It's on the the uh, story of abuse 
and how to overcome it. Hmm. When she got through with her counseling, where she wasn't having the nightmares and everything, she told the counselor, said, uh, I appreciate what you've done, and I never want to talk about that again. <laughs> and he said, Gail, it would be a shame to waste all that pain. Hmm. And that's when he started working with her on who and when and how to tell her story. And she's done that ever since. When we go to congregation, she'll use in the latest Bible class or some context, tell her story. And people just come out of the woodwork telling their stories. That's a good tool. It's a good ministry tool. So if anybody would like to have that, I'm her personal promoter right now. And I'd be glad to send you a copy of that. Cool, PDF. cool. Nice. And then we can't forget about your your book. Uh, the, I, I, wow, well, I was amiss to not say anything about it. Between Preachers, You Can Grow Through Interim Ministry. Yeah, Between Preachers, you can get that at Amazon. Wow, wow, that's good, that's good. Keep up the good work, Preacher. Thank you, thank you for uh, inviting me to talk tonight. No, thank, thanks for your time, though. You're a busy guy. Uh, hope you got another... Um, 60 some odd years and you're preaching well you know what <laughs> when I read obituaries now we went to a man's funeral yesterday 80 something years old and so I subtract 77 from 83 at 6 so uh, you start looking at those and I'm probably not going to have as much time in interim ministries already have 15 so uh, but I'm not going to die before I die so we you know we we're feeling good, working well, and plan to just keep on doing it. That's right. That's right. Brother Barbara, I will contact you uh, later on this week. Is that okay? Thank you. We'll, we'll just do it over normal phone this time. <laughs> All right. Thanks for checking out this episode of Liberation. Subscribe to the show and follow Liberation on Twitter and Instagram at Liberation underscore pod. Liberation is sponsored by Doodlebugs by DeVita. Thoughtful handmade jewelry designs inspired by love, peace, and unity. Shop Doodlebugs at doodlebugsbydevita.square.site. And for the Etsy lovers, it's doodlebugsbydevita.etsy.com. Use the promo code LIBERATION and get 10% off your order. Follow Doodlebugs on Twitter at doodlebugs for you. That's Doodlebugs, the number four, the letter U. And Instagram, Doodlebugs by DeVito.